3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, Malika. Do we have you? Well, you've got me, at least, if not Malika. Malika, are you there? Ah, the old studio too. I'm there. Oh, woohoo! I'm there. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah, it is, um, my mic is weirdly low. Uh, hopefully you can hear me now. Uh, but we are in the wars today, folks. We are, you know, it's a, it's a time. I was, this morning I was so disoriented by how many cars were on the road and why there was nobody on the bike path. And then I was like, oh, yeah. Wait, why was there nobody on the bike path? Well, I, actually that I can't explain, but I think, <laughs> I think everybody was maybe just really keen to drive to work. I don't know. But it's definitely feeling more active. It's feeling lighter. It's feeling like there's more people around out there, even at 6am. Yeah. Um, so things are happening, and that means we're starting to forget things because we're very overstimulated. Yeah. I mean, look, so this week, as you would have heard, um, across the week of our broadcasting, it is Disarmament Week 2021, which goes from, I believe, the 24th to the 30th of October. Um, really important uh, that we keep these conversations about demilitarization and disarmament going. And we've had specials on the breakfast shows every morning at 8 a.m., except for us. We're special today because we, uh, you know... Just one of those getting back out of lockdown things where we accidentally scheduled ours for 7.30. So I hope that anybody who's listening now, who's listening in for the disarmament segment, please make sure to listen at 7.30. Yeah, it's a special special. Think about it that way. We have two specials, basically, because we have Homes Not Prisons on at 8. Yeah. Um, but maybe we'll jump into the full rundown. Yeah, let's, let's tell people what's on. Okay, so first up, we are joined by Giles Fielke, who's a sessional academic unionist and member of Casualized, Unemployed, and Precarious Uni, uni Workers AU, or CAPAL. And Giles joins us to speak about the ongoing exploitation of casual workers in Australian universities, the failure to convert thousands of casual contracts into ongoing positions under changes to the Fair Work Act, and continued job cuts in the sector. We will then be speaking with Andy from Disrupt Land Force about demilitarization in the Australian context. And then we're going to be speaking with Folole Asuelo Sagele Topuola, a Pacific Climate Warrior Coordinator for, Vic- for so-called Victoria. Daughter of Moana, they are a storyteller and artist settled on Wathurong country and Falole is joining us today to discuss the upcoming COP26 climate summit in Glasgow and the Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate Change that will be uh, delivered to Pacific leaders at COP26. I think it's really cool that we're having this back-to-back with Andy's uh, interview on uh, demilitarization and disarmament because I think, you know, um, fighting climate change and fighting 
the military industrial complex really go hand in hand. And then um, last up for today, we have a special double segment um, with Homes Not Prisons. And Homes Not Prisons is a campaign calling on the Victorian government to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Centre and to reallocate the budget for prison building to public housing. And so this morning, we're going to be joined by campaign members Vicky Roach, who is a UN woman activist and advocate for Aboriginal women in prison, as well as Sara Stilianos and Gabby Franich, to talk about the campaign and the Victorian government in inquiry into the state's criminal justice system. Oh yeah, that's a show. Yeah, it's a it's a sh- it's always it's always a show. It's a massive show. Um and we're so excited for you to join us and just reminder because we have to do this every week, it is very important keep checking those exposure sites, stay safe, sanitize your hands, you know, don't you know, socialize with people but don't get up in people's faces you know you know the drill keep checking the victorian government uh website for those exposure sites and uh get vaccinated if you haven't already i think we're i don't know we're on track to hit about 77 percent of people over the age of 16 vaccinated today something like this mm-hmm. i mean i'll wait till the update but it was 76 yesterday and we've got, been going up by a percent a day so i feel like it's not it's not terribly prophetic of me to say but yeah um everything is happening I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and now it's time for our headlines. So our news headlines today, rallies will happen across the continent in a call for action surrounding the shooting of a First Nations woman. And before I go any further, I should say that this story does uh, uh, mention the passing of an Aboriginal um, person. So the First Nations woman referred to as JC for cultural reasons at the hands of West Australian police officer in 2019. During the trial last week, the officer was found not guilty of manslaughter and murder after just three hours of deliberation. This week, JC's family continue to call for action to address systemic and structural racism in the justice system and lack of police accountability for deaths in custody and use of force. Also this week, the Australian government is being urged to condemn Israel's move to declare six prominent Palestinian human rights groups terrorist organisations. Human rights groups and unions in Australia released a joint statement saying Israel is attempting to criminalise, persecute and silence Palestinian civil society organisations who monitor alleged violations by Israeli authorities in the occupied territory. This new measure gives licence to Israeli authorities to shut down these organisations, seize assets and arrest and imprison staff. Australian government officials say they are seeking further information but have given no indication they will speak out against Israel's move to further oppress human rights organisations. In more news this week. The Victorian government has released a draft pandemic management bill that gives authorities wide executive powers in the time of a pandemic.
including detention powers and prison time for failing to comply. Concerns are being raised about changes to parliamentary oversight under this law, as well as clauses that would allow the Health Minister to issue pandemic orders to specific people or groups based on characteristics such as age, vaccination status, occupation and living arrangements. And finally, the federal government has this week announced a commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050, but has refused to release modelling to back up the vague plans referenced in the announcement. A large portion of the plan relies on unspecified future technological breakthroughs, continues to emphasise no new taxes and fails to address fossil fuel exports, Australia's biggest contribution to climate change. And that's all for um, this morning's headlines. Uh, 2050. Yeah, no, seems fine. Seems seems fine. Seems normal. <laughs> yeah. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. Diaspora blues. What makes you smile? and adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are about to go into an interview with Giles Fielke, who is a sessional academic, unionist, and member of the Casualized, Unemployed, and Precarious Union Workers, Uni Workers AU, or CAPAO. And Giles is joining us to speak about the ongoing exploitation of casuals in the Australian university sector, as well as the failure to convert thousands of casual contracts to ongoing positions and issues with continued job cuts in the sector, which we've most recently seen at Deakin University. Giles, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Priya. How are you going? Good, thank you. Yeah, it is um, absolutely incredible that you've joined us live for 7.15, so big props for that. Hey, no worries at all. Happy to be up and about. (laughs) Well, um, now I suppose we should turn to the serious content of the interview, um, which is obviously hanging over all of our heads as... uh, you know, I myself am also a casual in the sector and um, speaking with you and a lot of other organizers and seeing what you've been talking about. Um, it's clear that these issues that have been raised persistently about job cuts in the university sector and the treatment of casuals um, is ongoing, even though we've seen things like the University of Melbourne's Vice Chancellor Duncan Maskell issuing a formal apology for wage theft in early September. So, exactly, yeah. yeah, so there are these ongoing issues with fair remuneration, and um, even though we've seen some changes to marking rates, uh, mm. this is really not kind of capturing fair remuneration across the board. So I was wondering if you could uh, give us a bit of the lay of the land. Yeah, so I think the, the first thing to say, uh, Priya, uh, I think it's not too controversial, is that casualization. Uh, leads directly to wage theft and underpayments. And we've seen that not only in the university sector, but across the country in other sectors as well. And so there's been uh, changes to the uh, fair work um, legislation that came through earlier this year that, that sought to address um, this 
question of, of casual uh, underpayments and, and insecure work. But as uh, I'm sure you're aware and, and the listeners are, are aware, the, the changes that the current government have made um, didn't really do much to address this other than to protect uh, businesses from, from liability, essentially. And so um, there's been uh, big federal changes um, and then there are uh, specific issues to the to the tertiary education sector and um, there has been organizing campaigning um, uh, amongst casualized um, unemployed um, insecure workers in the sector that have forced these uh, issues to the surface and obviously the the pandemic over the last couple of years has also um, you know forcefully um, brought those issues uh, to, to the surface as well um, I think well, there's been a number of wins in many ways. Um, at the University of Melbourne, for example, uh, uh, I was involved in a campaign um, where the Vice-Chancellor essentially had to apologise uh, for for systemic and ongoing underpayments, which they've addressed for six years, um, which is the statutory limitations for, for back pay and underpayments. Um, but we know have have been going on for a lot longer uh, than that. Um, also, other universities, uh, Monash University is currently um, back paying staff for six years. I think uh, Sydney University um, has done an audit. Uh, universities around the country essentially are, are auditing themselves um, and, and now being audited by the Fair Work Ombudsman. Uh, and so there's, yeah, there's quite a lot going on. Um, in in the sector about this issue, um, and and it's not necessarily um, something that's going to be fixed overnight either. Yeah, definitely. And I think the the most recent, um, you know, major wage theft campaign that we've seen is at the University of Sydney, challenging their VC Michael Spence, um, who's mm-hmm. one of the one of the highest paid VCs in the country. Yeah. So Michael Spence, uh, you know, was outgoing as the vice chancellor at Sydney and, and essentially sought to um, take a position where the university would not admit to uh, the uh, claims made by the casual staff there that were very well organised, especially at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, producing reports which I would say um, rival uh, the sort of standards of any professional industry body report, uh, you know, in their own time, um, organising in their own, you know, precarious circumstances to 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 show to the university what um, what is actually going on at that uh, level of uh, employment in the in the university and in, in the sector. And and, and um, Sydney University unfortunately came back and said, "Well, we don't we don't believe you. We don't uh, trust in in the evidence that you're." Uh, presenting to us. They now have a new Vice-Chancellor, Mark Scott, who um, hopefully will will, um, hear these requests, but it doesn't seem like much has happened as yet. And it's similar to Monash University, where the the university essentially seeks to investigate and audit itself. Um, And as you can probably imagine, that leads to, um, you know, uh, a very limited scope or um, findings that will ultimately benefit the university management um, mm. when it comes to any wrongdoing. Um, so we really need um, a sort of an independent oversight of this and also we need um, organisation from, from the grassroots um, in the sector, I think, to, to force these issues to yeah. the surface. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And I think um, on that on that point about the universities internally determining whether uh, whether there are any issues going on, I think that also links to these changes to the Fair Work Act, which supposedly has opened an avenue to allow the potential conversion of casual jobs into ongoing positions for eligible employees. But obviously, eligibility is decided by the university. So can you tell us how this has worked in practice across Australian universities and a little bit about the NTU uh, casuals at the University of Melbourne's open letter that addresses this? Sure. Yeah, so so essentially the um, the changes made to the Fair Work Act, which there was meant to be far, far broader changes uh, made to the legislation, amendments made, um, and uh, in an omnibus bill earlier in the year that um, didn't, not all those changes were passed and, and only uh, a small sort of set of changes proposed by the government um, went through and, and one of those changes uh, directly affected um, the definition of, of casual work in the country. And so that triggered um, an audit for all casual workers uh, across the country as an obligation by employers. And now that audit has been undertaken and um, the essential um, sort of outcome of that is that workers found not to be casual uh, workers or truly casual, especially people who've been working for, you know, ongoing for, for years. Some people I've spoken to have worked in the sector for over 20 years on casual contracts. You'd expect that they would be found to be not casual uh, under the, the changes to legislation, but... Unfortunately, um, the way in which the government has uh, changed the definition of casual work, um, it uh, benefits the uh, employer and their definition, their own definition of, of what casual work is and the work that they offer. Um, and so we've seen these ridiculous circumstances where there's thousands uh, of uh, casual workers, casually co contracted employees at Melbourne University, for example, as, as there are at, at any number of universities around Australia, and the conversion as a result of that uh, necessary audit would be like under 1% of the current staff. So I think there was something ridiculous out of Deakin where, where seven, uh, seven casual workers were offered to convert to um, ongoing work out of Two or three thousand, I think. Yeah, that's just so, ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And so the response from Melbourne University uh, to answer your question is uh, the casuals network there has this has been ongoing, and so the fair work changes are only the sort of more recent um, thing that's happened, the more recent communication we've received about casual work at university and the, the sort of rejection, mass rejection of conversion not only at, the, at Melbourne, but across the board. Um, we've written to the Vice-Chancellor that we have 370 and counting signatures on an open letter at the moment, over a 1,000 years of uh, insecure employment at the university. Um, if you add up everyone's time spent there, who signed a letter? Um, and we're asking and actually demanding that the uh, Vice-Chancellor address uh, casuals at Melbourne in an uh, open meeting, a staff meeting, mm -hmm. Uh, to be held this year. Um, we're also demanding um, people ineligible for the uh, conversion through the Fair Work Amendments to be given a more detailed explanation as to why they're ineligible. Um, we've also got demands for 42 specific applicants under the Staff Enterprise Agreement that's uh, a 
transitional arrangements around conversion that they be immediately converted, as well as the funding of uh, 200 um, early career academic fellowships that Mm. are part of the current enterprise agreement as well, Um, and a commitment to recognise the PhD rate. So the number of issues at the university that affect casual staff that we're hoping to directly uh, demand from the Vice-Chancellor through this um, open letter. Yeah, and having had a look at that, I I think... um you know, I recommend that uh, people who have uh, who have not engaged uh, with with what's happening around casualization in the university sector have a bit of a look at the various university casual Twitter accounts, for example, because you'll see again and again um, this quite quite callous um, messaging. You've you've not been converted for, and then in brackets, reason, um, mm. which was just it was heartbreaking to see. Yeah, for people receiving that who didn't actually ask to be converted, you know, they didn't apply, they weren't going through a process where they sort of prepared themselves for um, that process to get that out of the blue and then to have mistakes um, in the pro forma emails that HR departments have sent out that, you know, further further confuse the issue. Um, You can imagine the effect that that has on someone who's been working in the sector for maybe a decade, maybe Mm -hmm. longer. Um, and just feeling like what what is actually going on here? Yeah, um, it's not uh, it's not the way to, to treat uh, you know anyone. And uh, the HR departments themselves, like the, the people who work in these departments, like they they admit that they they they're actually are sort of um, you know not sure what they're doing with this issue because it's so bad mm. that they can't they can't seem to fix it uh, themselves. And so it's going to take coordinated efforts from vice-chancellors across the sector, from university boards. We've been contacting the board members of universities to make sure that they're aware of what's going on. Um, and also the public and, um, you know, people uh, taking notice, obviously, of, uh, of this issue, not only in this in, in our sector, in, you know, Kapow, the casualised, Unemployed and precarious university workers is one of those organising, uh, say, uh, bodies that um, you know regularly active on social media and, and online and so on. Most of our organising has been done through Slack and through uh, Zoom meetings this last few years, especially mm-hmm. around the country. But um, to take notice of that messaging, um, but also. Uh, essentially to to continue to push uh, for for changes to casualisation and the levels of casualisation in this country. So, again, the message we have is is that casualisation leads to wage theft. Casualisation and wage theft basically go hand in hand uh, in any sector um, from what we can gather. Um, And so we're we're essentially um, making the point that casualisation needs to have better and more enforceable conditions around it if it's going to be um, a legitimate part of the, um, you know, the labour uh, engagement model that the country uses. Um, and, you know, conversion is ne- not necessarily going to be the answer either. Mm. So it's something that we're having a discussion about at the moment um, in Kapow, um, yeah. how to respond to this kind of conversion question, this problem of kind of conversion rejection, because it's not going to fix things if, you know, under 1% of people are getting converted, say, yeah. at a time, or, you know, it's not going to fix anything. So we're, we're trying to essentially argue for, for conditions for casual workers right now, sick leave, um, you know, benefits that other um, ongoing staff 
um, I receive in the, you know, people yeah. that we work alongside, essentially. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, just to touch on that before we wrap up, um, because, you know, what you've gestured to is that this is an endemic problem in the way that the sector views its workforce. Um, one in five tertiary education positions have been lost in the 12 months leading to May 2021, and job mm-hmm. cuts have continued to be announced across multiple universities, for example, Deakin. So, um, you know, you've already gestured towards what needs to change, but I'm wondering, you know, how can people get involved in um, in organizing to push back? And, um, yeah, is there is there anything that can be done to ameliorate this? Yeah, I think um, a focus on the sector is important because it's, uh, you know, not only um, economically one of the biggest sectors, uh, you know, in Victoria, I think um, education is our biggest export, for example. Um, you know, and you can think about this economically in the size of the um, of the sector. But at the same time, we know that university uh, education um, is a part of the way we educate not only in tertiary education, but then into secondary and primary education as well. And so thinking about education um, and how we educate um, people, our young people in this country, um, how we educate uh, uh, people, you know, wanting to, to enter into the into the uh, education sector. Um, what that is going to need is like a, a basically a, a, a shift, a massive shift in in how we think about education in the country. And that's going to um, be a long debate, I think, and it's already a debate that's happening. But uh, running running universities as a a business, essentially, is leading to a situation where um, employers, university uh, employers, treat their staff, um, you know, like um, they are disposable um, Mm. and that they... Um, are only motivated by profit. And so when you think about the way that um, profit motives uh, enter into education, the effects that that is going to have um, on, you know, future future learning, future research, um, you know, it's uh, quite devastating. And the effects that it's already had are mm. sort of chilling. So, um, you know, encouraging people to think about this and get involved in the debate at a, at a at a national level, I think is really important. But in the in the in the immediate term, I think taking note of the stories coming out of uh, the sector, the casualisation and the um, yeah the loss of of staff numbers. I think you know we we hear about numbers of staff um, you know being let go at or, or fired at um, made redundant across the sector. But we're also worried that the university is. Um, Essentially, shifting to a more intensive casualisation model, universities are. So, when those staff numbers announced, uh, you know, 100 people mm. have been uh, made redundant, um, then those numbers uh, come back as casualised staff, and they're not countable in that way anymore. We're yeah. talking about 100 ongoing full-time positions that have been lost. But what is being replaced uh, with that labour, and that's uh, what we're really worried about, is the sort of uh, hidden um, hidden labour that returns instead, and, and mm-hmm. it allows the universities to reduce their liability essentially. Yeah, it is. I mean, definitely something that we want to keep having conversations about here. We've been talking about it um, on and off on Thursday breakfast, and I really appreciate you making the time. Now, just before I let you go, uh, where can people find out about Kapow's work? Okay, so uh, there's a number of Twitter accounts for 
say, local university networks, casuals networks, as um, you mentioned, and Kapow uh, seeks to kind of uh, bring all those networks together. So Kapow is uh, on Twitter as C-U-P-U workers, so Kapow workers. Um, and we also have uh, a website which is regularly updated with, um, you know, reports, uh, newsletters and, uh, you know, events, uh, things that awesome. are going on. So that's um, uh, the... Uh, I wonder if I should read out the address. Oh no, that's. I mean, I think people should be able to. They'll get to. Yeah. They'll get to Twitter, and then they'll be able to find everything exactly. from there. Exactly. The link is on the Twitter yeah. page, and we'll and, link people and, 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 yeah. in our show notes too. Thank you so much, Giles. Right. I really appreciate so you unpacking me, this. No, really appreciate um, the time. Yeah, right. no worries. Yeah, and that was Giles Fielke. He's a sessional academic, unionist, and member of Casualized, Unemployed, and Precarious Uni Workers AU, or CAPAO, who joined us to speak about the ongoing exploitation of casual workers at Australian universities. And now um, we're going to go to a track. Uh, this one is a new track off the Marinda's EP. So we spoke to them a few weeks ago about the first single, and this one is called Click That off their new EP, Complicated. Make 
you are on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am, or maybe you're streaming live, or who knows, maybe you're listening to us in the future on a podcast. Um, that was a new track from the Marindas, and it was called Click That. And now I believe we're going to an interview um, with Andy. Yes, thanks, Rosie. Um, we will now be speaking with Andy from Disrupt Land Force about the um, current state of disarmament in, Austra- in the Australian context. Good morning, Andy. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm very good. <laughs> Thank you once again for joining us nice and early. Um, I guess as a start-off, could you share a bit more about how disarmament relates to the work you do through Disrupt Land Force? Yeah, so... Disrupt Land Forces is a group that um, we formed in response to the Land Forces Weapons Expo, um, which or Defence Expo, as they they like to say, they don't like to use the word weapons or anything like that. A lot of euphemisms in uh, these military things. But um, Land Forces is the biggest uh, weapons sales conference in in Australia, and I think in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and it happens every two years, and it happened uh, earlier this year in Brisbane, and so we formed a kind of coalition of groups to to oppose it and to to not allow these transactions of weapons and uh, killing machines and uh, really scary technology in a lot of ways, like technology moving towards autonomous weapons and all kinds of things like that, uh, you know, networking contacts, and not allow these to happen smoothly in our city in Brisbane. And so we, um, over the, the days of the Land Forces Conference, we each day sort of made it difficult for people to get into that uh, convention centre without um, understanding that a lot of people are opposed to what they do and trying to show them the the real, um, the real products that are being sold in there, which is, you know... Um, the destruction and the lives lost in different places around the world where these weapons end up. And so Disrupt Land Forces, I guess, is um, part there's broader peace groups that are involved in that. But, um, yeah, we were brought together for that specific purpose. Yeah, you're right in saying that the industry is quite scary when you are kind of confronted with what is going on behind those walls and those expos. Research suggests that more and more young people are having a bit more of a negative view towards arms and the defence industry. And we also know through a recent report um, released by the Medical Association for Prevention of War that major weapons companies are seeking to bolster positive brand recognition amongst children and young people. What does this mean for community, national and even international organisations working towards disarmament? Yeah, well, um, it's good to hear that um, young people are being less uh, sucked in by the the propaganda of the military, of which there is quite a lot. And I think um, it has changed a bit. I mean, we've seen Alan Tudge, the education minister, in recent weeks talk about he's complaining about you know students not being taught that Anzac Day is this great day and Australia is the greatest country on earth. And <laughs> so. Uh, it's good, you know, that uh, we're getting a bit more nuanced in what we uh, teach kids about militarism. But um, but the military-industrial complex, as we call it, the, the network of, um, you know, uh, 
army and the weapons manufacturers um, are certainly very targeted in their approach to try to to get young people and a, and a specific type of young person, I think. You see yeah. a lot of defence recruiting ads that are just about adventure, you know, like, like, oh, this is my job, you know, I fly a helicopter, what do you do in your job, or something like that. And so that, that's kind of um, one for, I guess, the adventure-seeking person. But in in the... MAPW report about um, military in schools, in high schools and even primary schools, it's very targeted at what they call STEM, like uh, science, technology, engineering and maths, where these students who are, are gifted in a certain way are sort of funneled into these military um, programs that are sort of sold as teachers' guides, you know, as assisting teachers with these students. And so a lot of weapons manufacturers uh, design these teachers' resources, you know, um, whether it's lessons or have kids come to their, like, facilities for tours. And they're specifically aiming them at, at kids that are talented in these fields to try to re- recruit people very early. And, um, and really, I mean, it, it does a couple of things. One is that it allows the the military to start picking out who they're going to try to recruit. But also, at, I guess when young kids get to play with really expensive toys, you know, yeah. really fancy equipment, it, like the military in their mind is is this thing, is this exciting technology rather than what, you know, when it comes down to what the military does, which is about, um, you know, weapons killing. And in Australia's recent history, which is about going overseas to fight disastrous mm. wars and commit human rights abuses, you know, war crimes, and uh, and then lose and leave these countries in a worse place than they were before. And so that's not the picture that kids are getting from this. And so countering that is really important. And we've been trying to um, talk to schools about this and try to counter that. And there's actually been a few wins of a, a few... Um, schools being like, actually, no, we're not going to let um, weapons manufacturers in. And, of course, universities are the same. Weapons manufacturers sponsor um, programs at universities mm. and things like that. And so trying to get in there and and counteract the influence of these huge companies in institutions that are meant to be, you know, about learning and about producing better, more educated young people, but that are so um, co-opted. Yeah, and I think the kind of scary thing also is, um, from that report, it also outlines how um, these companies are targeting students that might be from marginalised backgrounds, like maybe it's women in STEM or those from, like, financially disadvantaged backgrounds, offering them these, like, awesome, fully financially supported pathways into, like, STEM work, but in the defence field as well and so kind of targeting students through that angle as well. And I guess that point you made earlier about how Australians 
Australia's like kind of recent history in terms of war. Um, of course, the impacts of the arms and defence industry are not equally distributed as we can see in the cases such as the brutal deployment of military technologies on civilians in Palestine and West Papua and with a history of nuclear testing on Aboriginal lands. What has been your experience through Disrupt Land Forces to build coalitions with people both in Australia and internationally when pushing for disarmament? Yeah, it's a there is a real disparity there, and we saw it at Land Forces, you know, on the uh, shop floor in there, like um, in the convention centre, they've got all these tanks, you know, um, big weapons, drones, things like that, um, that to us, we, we never see any of these things deployed in Australia. Yeah. Like maybe you see them being moved around for some training exercise or something, but... Um, you know, no tank has ever been fired in combat in Australia, but here they are selling them, and so it's very easy for them to become just um, some kind of abstraction, just a product, you know, just a sales pitch or something like that for people in there. But uh, because all the damage happens elsewhere, and uh, we've seen that with the Australian military in in Afghanistan recently, and yeah. um, but also with a lot of these weapons manufacturers, yeah, the places that they're going is to a number of like militarized zones. West Papua, one very close to Australia, which is a completely sort of occupied colonial territory of, of Indonesia, and um, and where the military doesn't just um, you know control the population; they do security for the uh, world's biggest gold mine there and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was one of the things that we really tried to do is to bring the focus of, of us who are trying to resist the um, weapons convention, but also to the people going in there, the um, workers and whoever that, that are going to the land forces weapons, to bring their attention back to the front lines of where it's happening. And so yeah. that meant getting West Papuan people to get up and speak, and we made sure to bring bring people down from Cairns, West Papuan people to speak. And we had um, people from Afghanistan, we had people from Palestine, we had people from Latin America um, mm. speak about their experiences to, to really bring back our focus to the fact these weapons are real things and they cause real damage, which, again, is so easily lost when they just look like a bunch of shiny toys. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, I'm just mindful of time, I guess, before we wrap up as well. For listeners wanting to learn more, do you have any organisations or pieces of work you would recommend that people check out? Yeah, well, um, Disrupt Land Forces, I suppose, is only... uh, an organisation with a, a specific purpose, but Wage Peace is kind of the broader um, organisation that's uh, was behind organising land forces. And at Wage Peace, we focus on West Papua as well as um, the arms industry in Australia. But also, we like at Disrupt Land Forces, we're not afraid of uh, getting out there and using direct action tactics, getting in. Um, getting our hands dirty, you know, going to where these things are being sold. And so um, if, you, if you're interested in that way, um, then, yeah, Wage Peace, we've got a website, which is wagepeace.org.au and social media and all that. And I think when it comes to the, the weapons 
in schools and unis. Um, there have been different groups over the years, but MAPW, the yeah. um, Medical Association for the Prevention of War, they're running a great campaign trying to highlight um, what's happening and trying to get in touch with schools and try to say, hey, is this really what you want kids to be learning? And so mm. uh, if, if people are interested in getting involved in that, it'd be worth checking out. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andy, and chatting a bit more about the work you do through Disrupt Land Forces. No worries, Malika. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, we just heard from Andy Payne from Disrupt Land Forces who joined us to talk about the state of disarmament um, in Australia at the moment. Um, we briefly mentioned in that interview the report from MAPW and we would recommend checking out Tuesday Breakfast that it did an interview with MAPW about their recent report um, on the relationships between the weapons industry and the Australian education sector. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org a 3CR supporter. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. CR Thursday morning breakfast back on 8:55 a.m. and next up we're joined by Falole Asweo Sagele Topuola, a Pacific the Pacific Climate Warriors coordinator for so-called Victoria Australia. Daughter of the Moana, they are a storyteller and artist settled on Wathaurong country. And Falole is joining us today to discuss the upcoming COP26 climate summit in Glasgow and the campaign Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate Change, which will be presented to Pacific leaders at COP26. Good morning, Falole. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Uh, morning. <laughs> um, I just wanted to begin first by yeah, inviting you to introduce yourself and some of the work that you do with Pacific Climate Warriors. Uh, sure. Um, so I am part of a grassroots youth-led network of 18 ocean nations and diaspora across Aotearoa, Turtle Island, and here in so-called Australia. And together we make up Pacific Climate Warriors 
since 2014, uh, we have been mobilizing, organizing, and training uh, the Pacific peoples and diaspora on taking leadership on the climate crisis that is greatly caused by the fossil fuel industry uh, in the Moana. So we are a volunteer branch to 350 Pacific and the global uh, 350 org movement. Uh, for us, we fight to keep all fossil fuels in the ground, uh, a just transition to renewable energy, and to cut uh, the flow of fossil fuel finances. And the very core of our work and how we move uh, in this well in this space is really rooted in our Pacific cultures and our frontline truths, which is our stories. Mm. So, yeah, that's us. Thank, thank you for that beautiful introduction. Um, yeah, you were just talking there about a just transition and also, yeah, um, kind of moving and working uh, in, in your truth. I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about, so COP26, um, for those who don't know, the Conference of Parties 26, which is this global summit on climate change that's happening. Um, I think it begins on Sunday in Glasgow in the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you just speak a little bit about both the significance of this summit, um, but also the importance of amplifying Indigenous voices in summits like this and also just in climate activism more broadly? Uh, definitely. So as a Pacific region, uh, us peoples have continued to show up together, uh, displaying true representation and solidarity as Pacific peoples who... Uh, in climate change spaces are silenced and greatly ignored around global negotiations on climate change. And, you know, when we look at our brothers and sisters from the Marshall Islands, they were the ones who pushed so hard and they led the call to action on the 1.5 Paris Agreement. Um, and our youth elder and Samoan sister, Brianna Frulin, who has been showing up in cop spaces with a red flower, or uh, we, I guess in Polynesian terms we call it a say, um, at such a young age, and for her to do so in resistance and defiance of Pacific invisibility and to stand in pride of her cultural roots. And so that has inspired the Pacific Climate Warriors campaigns um, for COP, uh, called the Have Your Say back in 2017. Uh, COP uh, is a very complex, uh, as like COP and G20, is a very complex and very draining and frustrating space for Pacific peoples mm -hmm. and Indigenous peoples. Uh, we keep thriving, but we keep thriving and demanding year by year that for the world to truly solve climate change, they must step back and listen and that climate change is Indigenous leadership and is Indigenous justice. And it's so crucial to stand in solidarity, um, such as, you know, our deadly sister and First Nations activist, um, Millie Telford from Seed Mob, uh, uh, to, you know, the traditional owners of the Wangan and Jangalungu uh, mob, Cody, uh, who are uh, fighting against the illegal down coal mine, 
and out to, you know, the Torres Strait Islander Yessi, who is one of the many Torres Strait eight complainants who have sent a case against the Australian government to the UN and, most importantly, the Free West Papua Movement. And so, you know, right now we are really at a major tipping point and it's really now... Uh, for Indigenous voices and especially young people to be leading. The recent IPCC report uh, was really not a surprise for the Pacific because we have been addressing this uh, to global leaders and to the world time and time again. And, you know, we have really been demanding real climate actions. And so COP is so so important for there to be a global shift for accountability and uh, for all Pacific and Indigenous people to be listened to on climate change. So, yeah. Yeah, that's... Oh, just thank you so much. Such a powerful answer, honestly, to that question. I was going to ask another question because one of the slogans um, that you have is this idea of we're not drowning, we are fighting. But I feel like you just spoke so well to that power and like um, a, a story that's not about victimization but actually about fight and about um, power and those like lines of solidarity as well between First Nations and Pacific people. Um, so maybe I'll just ask you, uh, we mentioned in our news headlines today and I'm sure many listeners know that um, the Morrison government you know, recently and kind of finally committed to this net zero target by 2050 but um, and they'll be going to COP26 with that but they haven't set a new uh, 2030 target and they haven't really given much detail about how net zero will be achieved um, and how that target will be met. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, what what would you hope for a target like, and what kind of key policies do you think um, a country like so-called Australia should be should be working towards and how could we meet targets that would actually affect change in this area? Mm. Um Talking, I guess, just a bit briefly about uh, that narrative of victimization that seems to always be put over Pacific uh, really undermines the extreme hard work that Pacific peoples on mm. the front lines are leading in combating uh, uh, this issue. And so it's very toxic for global leaders to keep painting us with the same brush for their own narrative. Mm. And... Um, you know, with the Morrison government um, committed uh, to taking up to COP26, um, what they are addressing over there is a complete disappointment. Their delivery is yet again filled with, you know, misleading information, language, greenwashing, um, ignoring, you know, the scientific evidence and also ignoring uh, the call for action and the solutions from the Pacific who have always been so, you know, so so welcoming um, to the Morrison government, such as the Pacific Island Forum. Mm. And so, you know, the government must end this bleaching relationship and outdated reliability with the fossil fuel uh, lobbying. Um, we are already seeing the student strike movement making such huge noise towards their leaders. And so when ScoMo attends COP, he and... Each and every one of these Australian delegates must listen to the Youthful Pacific Declaration um, that will be delivered, and as well as the Pacific delegates there in Glasgow, um, to listen to the seven demands on climate change from the Pacific and Pacific diaspora young peoples. 
you know, those demands cover the push for youth leadership um, and a real engagement of youth on climate change. And together with all global leaders, uh, we are calling for an immediate curb on carbon emissions by at least half by 2030. Uh, through, you know, a very just and urgent transition from uh, fossil fuels to renewable energy and to recognize that traditional environmental knowledge is so important and so needed to wove uh, in designing ocean policies. Um, and there is great financial transparency with the Santiago network and ensuring that, you know, there is grant distribution, not this apathetic loan mm. uh, that seems to be uh, put out uh, to the Pacific, um, which is really uh, not allowing, uh, you know, these grants to be going to these uh, community-led programs, and as well as adjust people's recovery, which ends fossil fuel financing and shifting away from, you know, this really extractive economies uh, to a more constructive um, where it recognized uh, by, you know, the Pacific cultures. And so really it's amplifying the call for action. And I want to see real commitment on climate leadership, on really transitioning from global extractive economies to a, a local living economy that is really all connected and rooted on shared values of dignity and solidarity and 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 respect and um yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's totally. I, I wanted to actually follow up because, yeah, so some of what you were talking about there is part of the Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate Change, which is um, going to be presented at COP26 uh, by um, the network that you work with and the Pacific okay. Climate Warriors. Could you talk a bit, a bit about that campaign and also the Have Your Say um, campaign just to wrap us up? Uh, most definitely. So last month, Pacific Climate Warriors launched a Youth for Pacific pre-COP gathering um, online, and more than 630 Pacific peoples and diaspora came together worldwide to collaborate and unify youth advocacy and engagement in climate policy in the lead-up to Glasgow. And the outcome was this beautiful creation of the Declaration on Climate Change, which really serves as the voice of young people in the Pacific and will be championed by uh, Pacific Youth representatives who will hand-deliver to our leaders there in COP. So this is all about building ambition, building community, building skills, and really building Pacific power. And as I mentioned about the inspiration and creation of the Have Your Say campaign, the Warriors are relaunching it this year to to resonate and build the same momentum and strength from all peoples and all allies to sign the declaration and to have a say. And so there is a a, a seven-day challenge during the Global Week of Actions next week, Um, and it's really to get people moving, get creative, and to support uh, the signing. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be going to be uh, really loud. Yeah, and so listeners can find out more about that seven-day challenge on the 350.org website. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so you can also uh, find us um, on all social media platforms. 
Yep, so just searching for Pacific Climate Warriors on all your social media platforms. Um, thank you so much, Philole, for joining us this morning and yeah, mm-hmm. sharing just such important um, messages about these kind of global climate summits and um, the Pacific fight against climate change. Thank you again for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. Great. Thank you so much, Rosie. Take care. And just then, um, we were really lucky to be joined by Filole Asueo Sagele Topuola, um, a Pacific climate warrior and the coordinator for so-called Victoria Australia. And they were joining us today to talk about the upcoming COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow and the Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate Change, which will be presented to Pacific leaders. And if you um, search for Pacific Climate Warriors on uh, all social media platforms, you can find out more about that campaign. And as we hit the 8 a.m. mark today, um, also flagging that 3CR this week on all the morning breakfast shows have been doing a piece um, at this 8 a.m. mark around disarmament um, as part of the Disarmament Week special. Um, so we've had different interviews throughout the week. Like, for example, on Tuesday breakfast, they interviewed Elise from the Medical Association for Prevention of War to talk about STEM programs targeting young women in schools and this morning at 7:30 a.m. we spoke with Andy from Disrupt Land Force to talk a bit more about uh, disarmament in the Australian context as well so for anyone that's interested um, you can check out on the podcast um, for all breakfast shows this week at around the 8 a.m. mark. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And um, we are about to go to an interview with uh, Vicky Roach, uh, Gabby Franich, and Sarah Stelianos from Homes Not Prisons. Um, and they're going to be joining us to talk about the Victorian government's plan to uh, expand the carceral system by expanding Dame Phyllis Frost Centre and also about the Victorian government inquiry into the state's criminal justice system. Um, and just bear with me for a moment while I get them to air. All right. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad that this worked. It's so good to have all three of you joining us this morning. Thank you. 
All right. I think uh, when I when I ask questions, I will ask um, all of you individually to respond so that we um, so that I don't worry you about overlapping. But um, maybe to start off with, for listeners who aren't familiar with Homes Not Prisons, when and why did you form and who is involved? And I might uh, I might throw to uh, Sarah first on this and then Sarah pass it on to anyone that you want. <laughs> all right. Um, first of all, hi, I'm Sarah. And um, so the reason that Homes Not Prisons was formed was because of the expansion that had been proposed or put into the budget by um, the Andrews government and to Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, which is the women's maximum security prison in Victoria. Um, and the reason we reformed was because of the fact that we have a massive public housing um, crisis and, like, what's the point in spending so much money on expanding a prison when... No homelessness is a key factor as to why women are in prison in, um, to begin with, and um, yet yeah, homes should be built instead of um, more prison beds and cells. So, yeah, so we've all come together to stop the expansion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Vicky, did you want to did you want to speak to that as well? Because I know that you've been involved in this for a while, and you've been engaged in so much important activism and advocacy around this, both inside and outside. Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, my name's Vicky Roach. I'm a, I'm a UN woman, and um, I'd like to, to pay my respects to uh, and acknowledge the, the country I'm on and uh, the ancestors and traditional knowledge keepers of this land. Um, yeah, the the thing is the expansion of prisons is um, is happening not just in Victoria but all over the country. Um, the the huge new prison being built up near Grafton. <coughs> now um DPFC in the time that I was there and I was released in two thousand and eight They've just been given $25 million to um, upgrade the prison. And um, yeah, we assumed that would be extra beds and things then, but it wasn't. Um, the prison, they just built... Um, the, the program was called Better Pathways, and that's pretty much all we got out of it was some new pathways. Um, they built a a welfare building where it's once you could just go and knock on the door and um, ask to see the welfare officer if she was there, you know. You could ask her yourself, have you got time or when can I come back? Um, but this new building, they made it double story and they put all the welfare workers upstairs behind a locked door and um, you had to go through a screw gatekeeper mm. to um, be able, she would decide whether your request to see a welfare officer was um, worthy or not. And <laughs> either make you an appointment or not. So um, $25 million, the first thing they built to start with 
was um, a million dollar recreational facility for the screws just outside the um, walls of the prison, which was apparently poorly patronised and uh, <coughs> a big white elephant. Mm-hmm. So I don't think expanding the prison or the money that they're um, they're putting up to expand the prison is um, well. Of course, it will be used to expand the prison, um, but that's not what needed. What's needed is the closure of that prison altogether, mm-hmm. of all prisons, in fact. Um, the expansion of DPST corresponds with the number of women who are being criminalised and incarcerated for um, crimes of poverty, um, uh, breaches of of orders, not even crime, but Mm -hmm. breaches of administrative orders. Um, It's unnecessary. Um, It will not do what the public thinks or is told it will do, which is keep them safe, because, like, you know, everybody gets out. And most women in prison have relatively short sentences. Mm -hmm. So it's... um, This this whole um, campaign has been born out of that... um, the correlation between the need for housing, public housing, not social housing, not affordable housing, which is still unaffordable at 75% of the market income, uh, of the market um, price. Mm-hmm. Um, we need more public housing. And that, as um, Sarah said, is um, one of the greatest contributors to women being criminalised. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Sarah and Vicky. Um, it is clear that, you know, as Vicky really put a clear point on, um, women are being criminalized for crimes of poverty. And um, especially with the remand system as it is right now, I don't think people are quite cognizant of the sort of revolving door of being criminalized for poverty, going into the prison system, coming out of the prison system with no support. And that lack of housing is really um, a crucial part of it. So, um, Gabby, I might turn to you. The Victorian Parliament is currently holding an inquiry into the state's criminal justice system, which is looking into factors, including the growing remand in prison populations in the state, questions around recidivism and judicial appointment processes. So I was wondering how this inquiry came about, and um, could you tell us a bit about your concerns in the Homes Not Prison submission? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, first off, I'll just introduce myself. Um, I'm Gabby. I'm coming from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people, so I'd like to pay my respects um, and also to acknowledge that prisons and policing are mechanisms of ongoing colonisation here in so-called Australia. So acknowledging that is, uh, I guess, a key part of the Homes Not Prisons ideology. Um, in terms of the inquiry, it, it came about, I think, because there has been you know, a lot of widespread concern over the last few years, you know, after bail and parole reforms have seen an increase in uh, prison populations. 
um, and also, you know, the judiciary having less sentencing options as well in terms of giving non-custodial sentences. So I think uh, there's been real concern over the growth of the prison population and the high recidivism rates, which I'm not 100% sure, but it is a, over 40%, I believe, um, people who get out of prison will uh, go back within two years. Um, so, you know, we're really kind of seeing that putting people in prison, whether it's uh, on remand or whether they have been sentenced and then keeping them in prison because parole is so difficult to get is simply, you know, not helping the recidivist problem. And, you know, the rehabilitation is a myth, basically, in my eyes. Um, so... Yeah, I believe that the inquiry came about because of these concerns and because it's clearly something that needs to be addressed. And also, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the populate, Victoria's prison population actually did go down for the first time in many, many years. So I'm hoping that, you know, this is sort of an opportunity to consider how to keep it down. Of course, the plans to expand the prison um, don't inspire a lot of confidence in taking that opportunity, but hopefully this inquiry will. Uh, so in terms of our submission, so we put in a submission uh, basically writing to the campaign's key goals. Um, so we addressed the inquiry's first term of reference, uh, which was about an analysis of the factors influencing uh, Victoria's growing remand in prison populations. Um, and we said that, you know, the criminalisation of, of poverty and homelessness that uh, Vicky and Sarah spoke about really well uh, is a huge part of the issue here. So our recommendations, which are also our campaign goals, are to stop the planned expansion of DPFC and to reallocate the uh, $188.9 million budgeted for the expansion uh, to build and support new public housing and uh, Aboriginal community-controlled homes. Yeah, it is. Um, I think you know it's it's quite it's quite clear these recommendations directly speak to addressing those those issues that um, that Vicky and Sarah were speaking about. And uh, Sarah, I might bring you back in here. Can you can you tell us a bit about why these recommendations are so important and so urgent? And maybe uh, talk about some of the damage that has been done by a lack of housing for women. Uh, yep. So. Um you know, I am a woman with lived experience and, you know, I didn't have housing myself and that was more priority to put me inside and incarcerate me than it was to keep me out, um, keep me out of prison. But, you know, and that's a story and a situation that many women face, um, you know, and the lack of public housing out in, you know, in society. Like, I don't think I even know of any housing that has been public housing that's been re, like, been built in, you know, probably decades. Like, you know, I've been had reoccurring homelessness since the last, for like, 15 years. And, um, yeah, I do not recall any public housing being, you know, built and and um, developed. I do know that, um, you know, the public housing waiting lists are expensive. And, you know, that's just, it's just not... Like, it is not realistic, the situation that we are in. Um, you know, we are all, str like, struggling. Like, we don't have... Centrelink doesn't cover... Um, you don't get enough with Centrelink. Like, the living wage 
I mean, the cost of living is going up while Centrelink benefits and everything is still staying exactly the same as they were, like, years and years and years. Maybe an increase of, like, a dollar, but that doesn't really Mm. (laughs) do much. much. Um, But um, the, the importance of public housing is the fact that it is the most affordable and secure kind of housing. There are a lot of other housing names that I know a lot of people out in community who do not have not had experience with homelessness or with working in the sector or using a service um, a service in relation to housing um, don't understand that um, public housing is completely different to social housing, community housing, affordable housing. Like they are still those kinds of housings are still expensive, like mm-hmm. and uh, are not secure and still bound by a lot of, um, I don't know, old form rules. I don't really know what they are, but, like, you know, reasons that somebody would get kicked out yeah. um, and, and become homeless again. So with public housing that's more secure, it is also 25% of a person's income, which means that that's affordable and people can still have money to live. Um, you know, at the moment I'm currently renting and my rent takes up you know, all of my Centrelink, I also work, but that's still, I'm only, like, you know, I'm only making enough really to to pass by mm. and pay the necessities, really. Um, yeah, I just don't think, I just don't think it is okay um, the way that the entire housing system in regards to, like, from private to pu- public um, is operating at the moment, like, or has for a long time because of the fact that, it's all about money and it's not about people's health, um, people's safety and well-being. Um, you know, and that's what we're seeing with, you know, prisons are not supposed to be used as freaking homes, mm. you know, but we're seeing them being used as homes, um, which prison is not a home. <laughs> yeah. That. Um, but, like, they are, like, you know, people being sent there because they don't have a fixed address, like, and that's not fair and that, that has detrimental impacts on a person's, you know, future, their life, their well-being... And, and, and their sense of self as well as those, the ripple effect that it has on their, their community and their families. So yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was, you know, such a comprehensive response. Thank you so much because it, it really does show all of the different dimensions of a person's life that are um, affected by not having access to stable housing. And that's only compounded if you are, um, if you're coming out of the carceral system and, Vicky, I was um, I was wondering if if you could maybe comment on, um, you know, the the importance of having secure housing if you are coming out of prison. Oh, it's absolutely key. Um, <coughs> a lot of people don't get their parole because they haven't got housing for them, and when they do find housing for people. It's usually in boarding houses that are full of people who have also just been released from prison um, or really crappy caravan parks and um, hotels that should really be condemned. (coughs) Um, And these, these things are not cheap. Um, they give you a couple of weeks free and then you're on your own. Um, there's housing is the key to pretty much everything. 
everybody deserves the right to a, a, a roof over their heads. You know, everybody pays taxes. Look, you'll say, oh, but they're, they're on the door. Doesn't matter. We probably pay more tax than people who are employed or, or millionaires, for instance, mm. because we pay GST on every single thing we buy. Every single thing that we use, our, our rent, our electricity, everything has GST built into it. So you can't tell us we're not taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that having secure and affordable accommodation, and, and I don't mean what they think is affordable, mm-hmm. I I mean, what really is affordable. Public housing at the moment is affordable. It's 25% of your income. It's fixed. You know what it is. Um, and, it, and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just selling it all. We don't have any. Yeah. Um, that the problem. We're busy as um on Nigan Sweden we're busy as building, you know, um huge high rises and investment properties. Um and prisons. Mm-hmm. But nobody's building homes that people can afford to live in. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's 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 all about money. And while people are desperate, have nowhere to live, and no money because of, you know, the various cuts, well, not cuts to um, welfare benefits, um, but the failure of, of welfare, well, look, why am I calling it welfare? It's social security, you know, that's afforded yeah. to everybody in this country. Exactly. Or is meant to be. It's social security. Um, and that's what we need to return to uh, as a country that believes in social security. And, and that keeps society secure. And yeah. having a home is, is the one thing that will do that. No, 100%. Thank you so much, Vicky. Yeah, it is. Um, it's just so crucial at in terms of making sure that people, you know, like making sure that people don't get caught up in being criminalized for these crimes of poverty. Part of that really relates to people having a home. And I mean, obviously, the issue of criminalization is is massive and we will be going into detail in other interviews about that. But I think before we wrap up, Gabby, would you mind letting us know uh, where people can find out more about the campaign and um, get involved? Yeah, of course. So um, we definitely welcome new activists, anyone who is sort of in line with our values of uh, stopping the expansion of any prisons and providing safe, secure uh, public housing to people. And, you know, especially I think we women and their children and First Nations people, we really encourage you to get in contact with us. So uh, you can find our website and our open letter at homesnotprisons.com.au. If you Google Homes Not Prisons, it should come up. 
Uh, and if you search us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, we also have social media mm. accounts where we post updates and, um, you know, other things from sort of other campaigns and organisations that would interest our followers, you know, things awesome. that are, like I said, in line with our values. Yeah. Um, and oh. we also have an email address as well if anyone wanted to get in touch to join in and talk more about the campaign. Perfect. That's at Gmail. All right. Well, thank you all so much. That is, I think, all the time we've got for today, but I really appreciate you joining in. No worries. Thank, thank you, you very, very much, Priya. Thank you, Priya. Talk to you soon. All right. And that was uh, Vicky Roach, uh, Gabby Franich, and Sara Stelianos from Homes Not Prisons who joined us to talk about the campaign. And that's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.